Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll move over to Romans 4 in just a moment. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'll collect those and we'll pray for you this coming week. We pray that our time together would encourage your hearts as we look at God's Word together. And right now we're in a, a series of messages in the book of Romans, and we've come to chapter 4 in particular, and uh, we have before us this this figure, this patriarch of Abraham that Paul is uh, commending to us as the father of the faithful. And what does it mean to live by faith? We're called to live by faith. To follow Jesus Christ means that my life is to be an ongoing expression of faith in him. Within my heart and soul, all that is within me, it places my trust in him alone. The Apostle Paul declared what sounds like his life's goal in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me. So we're giving attention in these messages to what it means to live by faith. Our lives are not meant to be an aimless pursuit marked by timid uncertainty. On the contrary, we read in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, verse 1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so in the same chapter, we also discover in verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I would say this is a pretty important topic, wouldn't you? What does it mean for you and I to live by faith? Several things come to my attention. I put them in your insert to help you uh, with this intro anyway. And that is that faith involves conviction and confidence, according to the writer of Hebrews. It involves knowledge, in this case of Abraham and God's redemptive plan. At the heart of the gospel is that it contains a message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and God's redeeming work through the ages, culminating in what Christ accomplished. Not only did he die, he rose again from the dead. And so we hear this message of the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that God demonstrated his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that moves our heart. Our heart of stone begins to become softened. How? I don't know. It's a work of God. I know not how God's wondrous grace, to me he's made known but hearing of the, of the wonders of, of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, my heart became alive to these things. And the world behind me and the cross before me. And I, I rose and followed him. My heart was moved, which led me to repentance and faith in Christ alone. And that commitment or trust, it's not enough just to know that Jesus died on the cross Good night, the devil knows that much. 
but that I'm actually committed to him. I'm trusting in him personally. And when we look at Abraham's journey, many years before Christ, he left the comfort of his family, his surroundings, everything he knew, God called him to leave, to go to a land that he would show him, and that from Abraham, all the nations would be blessed as he created a nation to be his people and to be the conduit by which the Messiah would come to us. Not only that, but I I see in Hebrews and other passages that, that faith is guided by hope. It's the substance of things hoped for. Now, when we speak of hope in typical conversation, it's a, you know, I, I hope it works out. I hope that I'm able to go on this vacation, or I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow, or wh- whatever. It might or it might not. But when we look at hope in the Bible, it is fixed on the certainty of God's promises. Our hope is not a fool's errand. We have every right to hope in the promises of God because he cannot lie. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance is what God has promised. And namely, when we look at Abraham, I will make you a great nation and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. We are blessed because God kept his promises to Abraham. And if we would believe in Jesus Christ, we are of Abraham's seed. True faith is not name it and claim it. That's a heresy. Name it and claim it because that's what you want and often it's driven by some materialistic greed or something you want. True faith is resting in God's promises, applying the truths that he's given to us, fulfilling the responsibilities that he's called us to fulfill In our text this morning in Romans 4, it says that Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. So Abraham, we know, was not a man without struggle. He was a man who had struggles and failures, and they're well documented for us in the book of Genesis. But he was guided by hope. Faith is guided by hope. Who who wouldn't be depressed in looking at their life and seeing all the shortcomings uh, of our life? What's our hope? Is that God has redeemed sinners like me to give a future in a hope. Notice also that faith has as its focus things not seen. Anybody seen Jesus with their human eyes? I haven't either. There's been some strange tales about how people have seen Jesus, gone to heaven, and all these other things. I would urge you strongly not to get into that, that we would stand on the revelation of Scripture and on these promises. So faith has as its focus things not seen. I I can't help but go to Thomas, the disciple Thomas in the New Testament in in John 20, when the disciples had seen Jesus post-resurrection, and they said to Thomas, who wasn't among them, we've seen the Lord. And we recall Thomas digging at his heels and saying, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, As the disciples gathered and now Thomas is with them, Jesus comes to them again in a post-resurrection appearance 
and stood before them and said, peace be to you, and said to Thomas, guess what? Put your finger right here. Put your hand right here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas did and responded the way he should have, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you've seen and believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Who does that include? How about every believer in this room? Every believer that has lived since Christ, risen and ascended into heaven. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his little book, All of Grace, faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then to expect this of him. Read the Bible that way, friends. Read your Bible that way. Faith is the simplest of all things, Spurgeon went on to say. It is perhaps its it's very simplicity that makes it so hard to comprehend. So what I, want, what, what I don't want to do in our talk about living by faith is you leaving here saying, I don't know what he's talking about. This is a, a basic command of what it means to be a believer. Notice something else by way of introduction. Faith is, is essential to pleasing God. If you have within your heart at all a heart to please God, know this, that it requires faith. Not your resume, not your performance, not your religious uh, details, but faith in him, resting in his covenant promises, going to his word, seeking him in worship, calling upon him in prayer. I would say that one of the the sure signs of, of falling away from God is to neglect your prayer life, to neglect his word. Living life quorum Deo before the face of God With this understanding of what true faith is, we grasp why Paul holds up for us Abraham in Romans 4 as the father of all who would believe. Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And when we look at Abraham, think of him being an Ur of Chaldees and God coming to him and calling him away from all that is familiar. It's an example to us. Would I have gone? Would I have... Would I have yielded to God's call? I believe it was effective fulfilling what God intended. He walked in obedience with the Lord. And so without examples, this kind of life seems like impossible. How could I ever live this way? So I am grateful that we have such a personal example before us to look and to learn And the Bible, in an absolutely amazing flourish, presents men and women of the faith and all of their weaknesses and all of their shortcomings presents them. Nevertheless, we see here that Abraham walked with God. He walked with him. So let me look at our text this morning uh, back at Romans 4. And I want to look at verses 13 through 25. And just ask this morning on the front end, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith? That doesn't mean we don't have times where we're afraid. We're, we're tempted not to believe. We're tempted to, you know, God doesn't keep his promises. This is just such a foolish thing for you to embrace. We're tempted to think that way. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
And so coming to passages like this, I've been praying this week that God would give us just tremendous encouragement to trust him. I don't know what you have on your heart this morning as you've come into this assembly. And, you know, I'm confident there's some that have major burdens, major struggles, major battles. I would hold up before you believe in God, believe in his promises, trust your soul to the promises of Jesus Christ. He will never leave you or forsake you. So in our time together, I want to look first at Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. God's promises come through the righteousness of faith. We've talked about what's the entrance requirement into heaven? That's righteousness. That poses a huge problem for us since none of us are righteous, no, not one. But there was a righteous one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who died and paid the penalty for our sins, that by trusting in him, his righteousness is credited to us. That's what it means to be justified by faith. In verses 13 through 15, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was not justified by his circumcision. He was not justified by keeping the law of Moses. He he lived 500 years before. He didn't even know there was a law, which I think is the point. He wasn't saved by his circumcision. He wasn't saved by a law he didn't know. He was saved how? By faith. The same way Abel was saved, the same way Enoch was saved, the same way Noah was saved, the same way Abraham was saved, we are saved. And that's by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Abraham had no way of knowing the demands of the law. The way to God was never through ceremony, The way to God's approval is not based upon your personal performance. I think that was Cain's problem. He brought this fruit basket as an object of worship and without faith and likely because it was the wrong kind of offering, he said, here, you ought to accept this. Look how good it it looks. And God had no regard for Cain's offering. It was not offered in faith and not offered in obedience. Verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. What was the promise? A land. Go to the land that I will show you. A people, numerous, so numerous that they couldn't be numbered. Like the dust of the earth, the stars of the sky. A blessing to the entire earth. Do you realize this covenant promise in Genesis 12, which we've looked at many times, has come to us right now. And what is encouraging to me as a believer in Jesus Christ is to align ourselves with the promises of God through the centuries. A future redeemer. Abraham believed that gospel. He didn't have all the particulars. He didn't know Jesus' name that was given to him at his birth. He just knew that he was coming and that God would provide everything that he needed. A dear brother in our church texted me several weeks ago as we were entering into Romans 4, and he said, what makes us children of Abraham is not our physical resemblance to him, but our spiritual resemblance to him. Do you believe God in that way? The Old Testament believers had the promise of of a coming Messiah who would take away sin. They believed God, even though though their understanding of the Messiah was incomplete and somewhat vague. 
God has always approved and recognized the person of faith. Do you want to please God? It's not by the works of righteousness that you think you do. It's by trusting in what he has provided. And so this righteousness, uh, I often mention this when it comes up in the scripture, that, that scripture presents three types of righteousness. One we want to avoid altogether, and that is self-righteousness, and that um, is captured by Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. I was taken by John 8, and would urge you to turn there with me to John chapter 8. In this section where Jesus talks about, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, that's in John eight thirty one. But how often Jesus um, uh, mentions Abraham, and really it's in response uh, to the Jews, to the religious leaders, who answered him in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham. We are offspring of Abraham. I love the King James there. We be Abraham's seed. We're from his offspring. And we've, we've been enslaved to, we haven't been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we become free? Oh, they were so enslaved, they couldn't see it. And then there's this conversation, it's so charged, all the way through the end of the chapter, and I won't read it, but I would reference verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I know that you are, verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And then they answer, and they bring up Abraham again in verse 39. Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You feel the charge from this? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And who are they? Your father is the devil, Jesus said, who was a murderer, verse 44, from the beginning. Now notice the last section here, uh, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced. Jesus Christ said that your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. You see the connection here? In, redemption, in redemptive history, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Can you hear the scoff? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And upon that, they began to pick up stones. Why? Because they understood that Jesus was making claims that, was only, that were only true of God himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And so this self-righteousness, we want to avoid altogether. Imputed righteousness is the other type of righteousness. That's... Righteousness outside of ourselves. That's righteousness that comes to us only by faith in Jesus Christ. And then flowing from that saving relationship with Christ is, is, is a practical righteousness where we're living out our faith day by day. Not calling attention to, to ourselves, 
but living for Christ and being salt and being light, where our ways begin to resemble God's ways. Paul said in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as dear children. I thought of the comment by Psalm 15. Listen to this question of this sincere worshiper. He says in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Who even asks that question today? The psalmist did. Of all the things I could be a part of, I want to be in your tent. I want to seek your face. I want to be a true worshiper. And then the answer comes, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right this practical righteousness living out as we grow in Christ and live by faith in him. God's promises come through the righteousness of faith. Notice secondly, God's promises rest on his grace. Verses 16 and 17. I, I appreciate statements like this. He, He writes, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That means us, all who would believe. It depends on faith. The power of salvation is in God's grace, not in our faith. In fact, as I understand the New Testament, faith is a gift. The power of salvation is in God's grace, not in man's faith. It's, faith is the instrument by which we receive his grace. And so an important distinction, Abraham's faith was not in itself righteousness, but was credited to him as righteous. God, uh, grace is God giving to us what we could never earn or deserve. It is God's power that brings the full force of his salvation. Have you ever taken the time to think to think through the many expressions of God's grace and redemption that's presented in the Bible. There's something that I find helpful in many systematic theologies. It's called, the Latin is ordo salutis, order of salvation. Just identifying God's grace as it's presented in scripture. The first would be election, God's choice of people to be saved. When did that occur? Before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us how many people are going to be saved, as many as God chose from the foundation of the world. And then the gospel call, because his electing love is not devoid of a gospel response. And so the gospel is proclaimed, the message of the gospel to all nations, through all believers. This good news that calls us to repent and to believe, which is followed by regeneration, How could one day my heart be a heart of stone and the next day it be a heart of flesh open and responsive to the gospel in my life? Some of you were saved as adults and you had friends or maybe your spouse, loved ones, neighbors, co-workers, and they witnessed to you and witnessed to you. And and so many times it was like water on on a marble slab. It, It didn't penetrate at all. But one day that changed And that change is God's regenerating work. And you were born again, as Jesus described in John 3. And this required a response, a real response from a regenerated heart. And that response led to your conversion by which you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in real time. 
And based upon faith, you were declared legally righteous before God. And not only were you declared innocent and righteous in the courtroom of heaven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you were adopted. You were adopted into God's forever family, called a son of God. And since you've come to know the Lord, God's grace has been on your life as you are sanctified and your ways become more and more his, your ways become more and more like God's ways as you follow in obedience and pursue holiness without which we will not see the Lord. And true saving faith is seen in the grace that it perseveres to the end. Well, I know people and they said they once believed in Jesus, but they don't walk with him anymore. In fact, they hate the church and everything to do with the Bible and don't want to hear it. What do you say about them? I would just simply say that's the mark of someone who never truly knew the Lord. To employ John, John's tongue twister in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out to really show what was manifest in their heart. And then how about the, the grace even seen in death? Where the believer in Jesus Christ goes where? Absent from the body where? Present with the Lord. And a future glorification of receiving a resurrection body. A resurrection body by which to live all of eternity. To experience life the way God intended it to be experienced. From start to finish, redemption is God's grace. God's promise of grace. And look at verse 17. God in whom he, he believed. God in whom Abraham believed. Who gives life to the dead. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now I was thinking about this, um, this whole concept this week. And I, I just, in reading that, want to establish in your mind and in our message this morning. That God's word always creates God's people. God's word always creates God's people. God's people don't come into being because some people got together and thought that it would be nice to have a religion. God's people are not created through religious councils or leadership or programs which have their purpose if sound. But God's word creates God's people. Take just a quick journey with me. God breathed into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, and Adam became what? A living soul. God spoke to Abraham and called him to be a great nation. God commanded Ezekiel. Are you familiar with Ezekiel 37? Where he, Ezekiel is called to preach to a valley of dry bones. Looked like a killing fields. A killing field. And God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? <laughs> On the horizontal, what's the answer? No, they're dead. They're gone. They've, they've deteriorated. They're, it's over. Ezekiel said, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, preach, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. 
And so here is one of those moments where the prophet is asked to do something really outside the box and he stands before these, the, this valley of dry bones and what happens? The bones begin to link together and flesh is taken on and this becomes an incredible message that God's people shall live. Why? Because God speaks and calls them to being. I was reading in James this week. Listen to this. James saying of the Lord, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God's promises come through the righteousness of faith. God's promises rest on his grace. Notice with me thirdly and quickly. God's promises are filled with living hope. Living hope, verse 18, in him he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. True faith, the only faith that results in salvation is marked by this, it's filled with hope. In hope against hope he believed. And hope and faith are kind of connected. Hope is the desire for something that might be true or might happen. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's promises to us are a living hope. From a human perspective, there was no basis for Abraham to hope at all. Why? Because in order to be a great nation, you need to have a son. And look at the text in verse 19. Abraham was as good as dead. We're past the, uh, the pre-Diluvian uh, lifespans that bumped up next to a millennium. But here we have Abraham as good as dead. He was nearly 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. She was old too, past the childbearing years. So faith is the, is the firm confidence that it is true or will happen. And so Abraham believed it would come to pass as God promised. His focus was on God, not his circumstances. There's gonna come a day when we die, so many times I've stood right here and seen a casket below this pulpit, many times. Many times it's been a, a brother or sister who's professed faith in Jesus Christ. That for the believer, the end is not the cemetery. Death is a portal by which we enter into the presence of God awaiting a resurrection day, but nevertheless in sweet fellowship until that day. True faith refuses to allow doubt to reign, that we have a sure hope. In verse 19, he did not become discouraged by his own natural weaknesses. Abraham could have looked in the mirror, seen the flabby skin, seen the gray hair and the wrinkles and said, it's a lost cause. This isn't going to happen. This promise of a great nation. But look at verse 20. He did not waver in unbelief. Since we're quick quoting the King James this morning, I love the King James rendering of verse 20. He staggered not. He staggered not. What does that mean? He never had doubts? He never had fears? No, that's not what that means. Even through his doubts and his fears, he saw the promises of God and continued on. Friend, persevere in the promises of God. 
rested his promises. He grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. True faith gives glory to God. Look at that in verse 20. He did not waver, but he grew strong in, in his faith and he gave glory, glory to God. What a great statement. Godly faith is not full understanding, but full trust. There's so many times God will bring tests like that into our lives, won't he? Who are you going to trust, me or your circumstances? It glorifies God. Faith, which is a gift from God, gives God all the credit. All of the credit. This is how I want to close this message. In preparation for the praise team to come. Jesus said in John 18, when the, when the Son of Man comes, that means Jesus talking about his return, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If it's impossible to please God without faith, if I'm lost, if I don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is saying, will I find faith on earth? Here's what I hope we would say as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, here's what I hope would be the resolve of our heart. It'll be found in me. It will be found in me. Though all men are liars, God is true. And that's where I'm gonna stand. Regardless the criticism, regardless the indifference, I stand on the promises of Jesus Christ. Let it be said of us that the Lord is our passion and that his promises are the anchor of our soul in the storms of this world. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. John, if you would come and lead us. And as they come, I pray that we would give our hearts to the Lord afresh and anew. To bring our doubts and fears to him. To remember the example that have, has been given to us in scripture and that we would seek the Lord and trust and rest in his promises. Let's stand together as we sing.